0: Hello, folks. Welcome back to the On Being Christian podcast. My name is Nolan Ruby. I'll be your host. I'm also the pastor of the Wasatch Front Baptist Church here in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm looking out the window today, and um, we have a full-on bloom of summer coming in. I was listening to the news the other day, and someone had told me that three-fourths of Utah's snowpack is still up in the mountains, and that's a lot of snow. In fact, we had one location up in a place called Alta that had over 100, no, 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 I apologize, 900 inches. That doesn't sound right. That's crazy. I had to look that up a couple times. 900 plus, 900 plus inches of snow in the winter of 2023. And um, that's going to be interesting when all that turns to water and water is going to start coming down the mountain as it works its way to the actual Salt Lake and it's got to go through Salt Lake City to get there. So we could have kind of an interesting later uh, session of spring here. Um, I'll keep you posted. I want to talk to you today about the idea of rhetorical questions. I don't know if you're familiar or if anybody has ever asked you. Usually when someone asks you a rhetorical question, it's more of a uh, correctional thing, a correctional statement um, that they're giving you uh, more than it is them seeking knowledge that they don't have. Um, but this happened to me a couple of weeks ago, and it reminded me of something that I did a study on a while back. Uh, and there's, a, there's several sections of scripture in the Bible where the Lord asks people rhetorical questions. And it, it's kind of funny to me because some of the things that he asks are so far beyond not only our ability, but our very capacity of imagination that it, it's very corrective indeed. And so before I get too far into this, I want to just describe what a rhetorical question is. The, the word rhetorical, this is taken from the Oxford English Dictionary, is a word meaning um, eloquent or in an eloquent expression, the term is calculated to persuade, uh, often um, in a depreciating way, it's composed of or expressed in artificial or extravagant language versus the nature of mere quote unquote, rhetoric, which is more sober, like uh, sober statements and arguments. So, in other words, it's not a question that's asking information for which the person asking the question doesn't have but rather a question that leads the person who's being asked the question to realize that they're so far over their head that they shouldn't even be talking. The statement that was made to me when I was a kid, and I've heard it since then in in different movies and things, was, son, you're asking how a clock works when you should be asking what time it is. And that's more of a statement. A rhetorical question would be something along the lines of, you know, a father or a mother looking at you and saying, oh, I suppose you're the one who's responsible for this. Is that right? Well, of course that's not right. They know that. You know that. And so you see the rhetorical question is more of a a statement of correcting you. Uh, uh, in a, in a in kind of a polite way, um, depreciatory, depreciating type of idea is is the word that was used. That's a word that means uh, tending to depreciate or disparaging you away from something that you thought you were worth. So this is an interesting idea, rhetorical questions, and there's lots of places in the Bible where men of God or even God Himself will ask. Rhetorical questions. One of the first places is found in Isaiah chapter 40. and, And the idea behind sharing this with you today is sometimes we get this, we get this notion that God needs to explain himself to us. He needs to come to us and check in with us before he does things in our life. As Christians, our job is to follow Christ. Sometimes Christ will take us places where we're not so inclined to follow him, and then we want to ask him if he knows what he's doing. We, in fact, sometimes will even throw a little bit of a fit, because this is not happening the way in which I want it to happen. And so we sometimes, though we wouldn't word it like this, we find ourselves asking the Lord if he knows what he's doing. And it's in those times where the Lord (laughs) will, will ask us some rhetorical questions, that will put us in our place if we let it. The first section of Scripture I want to look at is Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to start in verse 12. I'll read down through verse 25. The Bible says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You understand, right off the bat, the Lord's saying, do you understand who you're talking to? I've measured the waters in the hollow of my hand. And meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? There's a rhetorical question for you. You're going to liken God to somebody? Who? Who are you going to liken him to? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known, have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? Is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof "...are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and that spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. That bringeth the princes to nothing, he maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted, yea, they shall not be sown, yea, they shall uh, stock... Excuse me, uh, ye shall stock shall not... I apologize. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth... And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the wither the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. Here's the final question. To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal? saith the Holy One. A whole section of scripture here. He says, What do you who who's like me? You're gonna cut a tree down and you're gonna have someone form it into some kind of image and you're gonna you're going to put gold and silver over it, and you're going to bow down and worship it, and you think that's like me? I carry you around, and you've got to carry your God around, and you think that's like me? I've spanned the waters. I meted the heavens. I comprehended the dust. Did you get that, folks? He com- and it comprehends means he's able to articulate from a position of knowledge the numerical value of dust, what he comprehended the dust he weighed the mountains balanced the hills directed the spirit of the lord sitteth upon the circles of the earth these are all rhetorical questions he says i suppose you understand how i've done this the answer obviously if we're being honest is no no lord i don't i don't know how you did that i can't even you comprehend the dust I can't even comprehend how dust can be comprehended. Folks, he's so far beyond us. He's so vast. Our God, when he takes you down seasons and roads in life that you may not necessarily agree with, that you might find difficult, that doesn't mean that he doesn't know what he's doing, and that doesn't mean you have the right to question him. It just means that he is taking you through something, that with his help, you'll come out better on the other end of But sometimes we don't like to do the things the Lord wants us to do. We don't like to go down the roads that are scary. And so we end up asking the Lord, Lord, do you know what you're doing? Lord, is there something else that we might do? Lord, I don't really want to do this. And he asks us these types of rhetorical questions. The active action is all of the things that we just read. And then there's the passive action, uh, without need of instruction, knowledge, and understanding, the Bible says, the nations are as nothing before him. Just a passive statement he makes. There is nothing sufficient for him. He is not, there is no equal, there's no likeness, there's there's nothing to compare to him. You understand, these are just passive questions that he's throwing out there. He's saying, do you, do you have any idea? There's nothing that compares to me. There's nothing that can hold me. There's nothing that can comprehend me. And I comprehend everything. I comprehend absolutely every numerical value of even the micro-elements of your existence. I understand it. I comprehend it. I've numbered them. And we're asking him if he knows what he's doing? It's just kind of a simple thought that makes me feel a little bit silly when I say it out loud. If you go to Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. I'll read 33 through 36, if I can get there. Um, The Bible says here, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord Or who hath been his counselor? These are rhetorical questions. Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. (laughs) Retort of him, through him, to him is everything the depth of the riches of both wisdom and knowledge. It says they're unsearchable. His judgments are past finding out. And so when the Lord takes us down seasons of life in which we don't really like it, we say, Lord, what are you doing? (laughs) Don't be surprised when he says, if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't have the physical, psychological, spiritual makeup to even understand it, to comprehend it. And so our job is to just trust the Lord. Folks, you understand the Lord's not going to hurt you. The Lord's not going to do something that he can't pull you out the other side, more mature, more, more. You say, well, the Bible's full of stories of martyrs who literally were murdered for the cause of Christ, tortured for the cause of Christ, Yes, yes, I know. You understand, folks, when we die, having already accepted Christ as our Savior, and we see him as he is, face to face, we'll understand that the things that we went through in this life pale in comparison to the reality of living in the presence and glory of the eternity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing that's going to happen to you here is things that didn't happen to him. Nothing that you're going to go through here is something that he didn't himself go through. Nothing. And when I'm going through things that are physically hard, maybe mentally, spiritually confusing, the Bible says God's not the author of confusion. And so if I am confused, it's not because God wants me to be. It's because I'm focused on the wrong desire. God will ask some rhetorical questions sometimes. And when he does, take them for the correction that they are. Apply them instantly for the value that they, that they bring to your life. And then leave the rest in the Lord's hands. It's not for you to understand as much as it is for you to just obey the word of God. <laughs> Amazing verses here. There's a wonderful section of Scripture Uh, Job chapter 37 leads us up to chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41, where there's basically four chapters of rhetorical questions, and uh, I'll kind of show you what that looks like. But in Job 37, 14 through 18, the Bible says, Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still, and consider the wondrous works of God. Okay, so he says, listen, you need to stand still and listen to me. I'm going to, I have some things to say to you. He says, Dost thou know when God disposed them and caused light of his cloud to shine? Dost thou know the balancings of the clouds and the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge? How thy garments are warm when he quieteth the earth by the south wind? Hast thou with him spread out the sky, which is strong and as molten-looking glass? And it goes on here. I want you to understand the background of the book of Job. Job, if you are familiar with the Bible, is a man that was targeted by the devil, but not done without the permission of God. Job was a just man, the Bible says, and feared God. And uh, there was a conversation recorded in the beginning of Job where God asked the devil, have you considered my servant Job? And the devil said, I I can't get to him because you're protecting him on every side. I want you to understand, how did the devil know that Job was protected on every side? Well, I think it's because he had checked out. He had checked him out. He'd already tried to get to him, and God's hedge of protection around Job was so completely thorough, the devil couldn't get to him. And so the devil said, God... You remove that hedge of protection, and I'll have him curse your face. And so God gave the devil permission, and the devil descended, and Job lost everything within the matter of just a couple hours. He lost everything, and um, but he didn't. He didn't go back on the Lord. And then uh, God asked the devil how it how it worked, and the devil, you know, of course, it didn't work. So he just kind of said, "Well, you didn't let me touch him." Uh, if you let me touch him I'll put my hands on him he'll curse you and the Lord said, well you can do that, just don't kill him And so the devil cursed job and dropped a plague of boils on him and and job still didn't curse the Lord and you see the devil just kind of lose interest and go about his way but what happens next is the friends of job show up. Uh, his wife tells him, dost thou retain thy integrity? She tells him to curse God and die and he didn't do that And then these three men show up and basically blame him for the problems in his life. um, Tell him, God, you know, doesn't do this to just people and you need to fix something. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And Job finally has it. And he starts to kind of get a little angry and say some things. And chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41 is the Lord answering Job. You see in chapter 38... Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, and he went on for four chapters of asking Job rhetorical questions. Four chapters. Now, I don't have the time to read four chapters with you, but I did write down the questions that he asked him. And he asked him questions in a way that Job understood this was something the Lord had done. And so here's what the Lord said he did, and then he asked Job if he understood it. He laid the foundations of the earth. He laid the measures of the earth. He stretched l- the line upon the earth. He fastened the foundations of the earth. He laid the cornerstone of the earth. He shut up the sea with doors. He made the clouds of the earth. He stilled the waters of the With boundaries, he commanded the light. Now, you see this in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Talking about Job. In other words, if I could rephrase that and you would give me the liberty to do that, the Lord said to Job, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you're talking to? I suppose you were there, and that's what you see it pick up in verse 3. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where was thou when I? And he goes on to say all these things he did. He said, Where were you when I? And he did all those things about, he said all those things about the earth. He also goes on to say, He walks in the springs and depth of the sea, has control over death, persecution or excuse me, perception over the breadth of the earth, knows where light dwells, knows the place of darkness, understands the treasures of snow and hail. That's a, a phrase um, that gives you the, the the picture. He understands the, the, the treasures of In other words, the, they say there's no two snowflakes alike. Same would apply to pieces of hail, the way water crystallizes. The Bible says that the Lord understands the treasures, the particularness, the peculiar, the peculiarities, the, the individual nature of every snowflake that has ever fallen or that ever will fall on planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> understands the treasures of snow and hail. Understands the parting of light. Imagine that. He understands the parting of of light. He divided the waters. He set waters in a specific course. He understands lighting and lightning and thunder. He directs the rain. He satisfies the empty. He brings forth the harvest. He's the giver of water. He binds and sets loose the stars. And he goes on to say Masroth and Asroth. These are actual... These are And it records it in the book of Job. These are actual constellations. The Bible says he binds them and sets them loose. In other words, if you see a star in a specific place, it's because the Lord keeps it there. And you ever go out, I like to go out on top of the Wasatch Mountains and look up, if I can get a couple peaks back in the summer, away from all the ambient light of the city, and boy, you can just, I mean, you could almost you just see shooting stars lighting up the sky the bible says those are all done by the specific hand of the lord he sets them loose brings the harvest giveth the binds and sets loose the stars knows the ordinances of heaven set the dominion of the earth has commanded By voice of the clouds, he commands the clouds, can command lightning, gives from himself wisdom and understanding, can number the clouds, can hold back the heavens, cares for the wilderness, the unicorn serves him, decorated the peacock, gave wings to the ostrich, gave the horse his strength, gave the hawk his flight, has command over eagles on high, uh, he has all judgment he has uh, he is uncondemnable he is the arm of might he is the voice of thunder he is decked with majesty and excellency he is arrayed with glory and beauty able to abase all pride and rage, he can tread down the wicked, his hand can save, he controls the behemoth, he controls the leviathan, he cannot be prevented. You'll find all of that, folks, in Job 38, 39, 40, and 41. And when he is saying all of these things, all of these powers that he alone and specifically has, he asked Job, I suppose you know how I do that. You see, the rhetorical question, the nature of a rhetorical question is very corrective. In fact, twice he pauses, and Job offers an answer. In Job chapter 40, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I lay my uh, hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. That's really all the value in the world right there, when the Lord tells you to do something, when the Lord leads you down a road that you may yourself not want to be doing instead of asking questions about the guidance and will and and mind of God, which the Bible says is so far beyond us, if he told us we couldn't imagine it, just obey. that's what job he said, I will lay my health, I will lay my hand on my mouth and speak no more. He answers again in Job chapter 42, then answered Job the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Now he's using God's own words towards Job, but he's applying them to himself. Job is. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not, down in verse 6 it says, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job said, it's too wonderful for me. It's too much. It's, it's too much. I, I, I won't speak anymore. Now, there's no reason for, for Job to have gone through all the things that he went through. To have lost all the things that he lost. And if you're not familiar with it, if you go over to Job chapter 1, it records the story of uh, uh, of the conversation between uh, God and, and the devil. In and, and verse 13, Job's life begins to fall apart. It says, And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking, when in their eldest brother's house, and there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sibians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there also came another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Uh, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell me. Verse 22 says, And all this... Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. And then it keeps going. It just keeps going. Job comes after, or the devil comes after Job personally. And then in chapter 2, verse 9, you see his wife come after him, then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity, curse God, and die? But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women, Speaketh, what shall we receive a good at the hand of God and shall not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In fact, verse 3 says, still he holdeth fast his integrity. And so you see all this and then his friends come and they get involved and they kind of blame him for the problems that he's facing. And finally, Job's had it and he says, Lord, why is this happening to me? And the Lord goes on four chapters of asking Job, why in the world would you think that I should explain myself to you? And Job takes it as the correction that it was intended to provide and he repents of his words, tells the Lord, I'm not going to ask any, I'll lay my hand on my mouth and speak No more. Interesting. If you go to Psalm 62, Psalm 62 and verse 9, folks, sometimes the Lord will take us down paths, and there may not be an explanation for it. I personally have been down some of those roads, and uh, you don't understand it. You don't really, it doesn't make sense to you. But I want you to remember, the Lord is the Lord. He is in heaven and we are on earth, and our job is to trust him by faith, accept him, and live our lives in accordance with his word, and to let him be our God, because everything that he puts in place in our life will produce his glory, his benefit, his good. Psalm 62, in verse 9, the Bible says here, Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. I want you to notice the first point that I was trying to look at concerning some of these things about going down roads that we don't really appreciate, God can do everything, folks. We read that from Job chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41. We also saw it in Isaiah chapter 40. God can do everything. Things that we can't even understand how he did it, he can do it. Well, what's the second point? Well, what can we do? Well, according to Psalm 62, verse 9, not much. It says, they are every every aspect of man, from the lowest to the highest. They are altogether lighter than vanity. Vanity is a word for nothing. Lighter than nothing. Psalm chapter 39 and verse 5. Psalm 39 and verse 5. The Bible says here, Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and my age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Folks, at our best state, the very best state that we could possibly ever be in, the Bible describes it altogether as nothing more than nothing. Vanity, where God can span the waters in the hollow of his hand. He can met the heavens and weigh the mountains. He can comprehend the dust and the treasures of snow and hail. He decorated the peacock and the unicorn belongs to him. And he set the course of the waters and he shut up the sea with bounds. And he, he controls the waves and he walks in and amongst the depths. He controls light. He knows where light lives. He understands the separation of light. He comprehends everything. What do you and I comprehend? Nothing. What can we do without God? Nothing. You see, in this life, we measure our life based off of real tangible things. We take our value from it. We take our, um, our self-worth worth from it. The Bible says that this life is a vapor. It's grass. It's smoke. It's wind. It's, it's, not what they, it's not what we were created for. We were created to be in the presence of our God in heaven, And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that relationship has been restored. And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, my life in him can be lived in the presence of God. So what's this life all about? Well, this life is about two things. Number one, space before salvation to repent of my sin and ask Jesus Christ to save my soul. And number two, space after I accept Jesus Christ as as my Savior to say thank you with my life. By becoming an example to others about the love and power of Jesus Christ. And so what is Christ capable of? Everything. What am I capable of? Nothing. I'm vanity. Vanity. Romans 3, 4, uh, the Bible says here, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. God is true, and every man a liar. Psalm chapter 90, Psalm 90 and verse 4. The Bible has quite a lot to say about this. These rhetorical questions, these things the Lord allows us to comprehend. He asks us these questions not as a way of seeking knowledge But as a way of correcting us, Psalm chapter 90 and verse 4, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. That's what our life is made up of, folks. A thousand years in his presence is just kind of like yesterday. Kind of like yesterday. So what is this life all about? It's about understanding that it's not about this life. It's about his life. It's about the life of Jesus Christ and the eternity made possible by the life of Jesus Christ in the presence of God in heaven. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 30, the Bible says, Even thy youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Folks, it's all across the board. What are we capable of? folks, we're not. we're not. We're not capable of anything without him. And everything that matters, the things that he did, they're so far beyond our comprehension sometimes, we can't even, we can't even imagine it, much less understand it. Much less understand it. So what is he capable of? Well, he's capable of everything. And when he asks you rhetorical questions toward that end, they're not questions that are meant to get you to argue with him as much as they are questions that are meant to correct you. To correct the way you're thinking, to correct your mindset. I remember my niece. One day, real she was real young, uh, two three years old. I was singing in a quartet, and her mother was a part of the group that we sang in, and we were at the church, and we were practicing. This is long before I was in the ministry, and my little niece was over by the piano, and she kept banging on the piano, just different. Awkward, irrelevant notes. While we were trying to sing, and uh, she, her her father wasn't there. Her father is one of my best friends, um, but her, she was just kind of you know taking a few more liberties than what she might have had, knowing that Dad was there looking at her, and so she was just having fun over there. And I I remember stopping what I was doing and I looked at her and I said, "Girl." Bang that note one more time. Do it. Go ahead. Just see what happens. Bang that note one more time and see what happens. She looked at me, very confused, kind of with this idea of, I feel like I'm getting corrected, but he told me to do this, so I'm going to do it, and she hit the note. (laughs) Her mother immediately told me, she's like, oh, don't. She doesn't get, um, she doesn't understand uh, whatever you would describe that as. she doesn't. She doesn't get that. You know, she's not. She's not going to comprehend that. And it makes me think of this situation. Uh, sometimes we go to the Lord, thinking that He owes us an explanation for what He's doing. When in reality, if He was to offer us the explanation, it wouldn't even. We wouldn't have the capacity, not only from the position of knowledge and wisdom, but our own imagination wouldn't even be able to comprehend the reality of what he's doing. Folks, there's been things in my life that have happened even as early as of last week that I see the hand of the Lord preparing me for decades ago. And decades ago when I was going through something I didn't want to go through, thinking what possible help could this have in my life, not knowing that 20 years down the road the Lord would say, you remember the thing I let you go through? That's now. I gave you that then, so that you would be prepared now. that's kind of what I'm talking about. Sometimes the Lord lets you go through things and you may not see the value of it. You may not see the the appropriateness or the or the the um, the application of it, but that doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't have exactly that waiting for you down the road. And the more mature you get in the things and ministry and cause of Christ, the more you will allow him, to put things into your life in preparation for you down the road. Not really understanding it, but accepting that the hand of the Lord in your life will always produce something that is good. So what's the difference? What's, be, what's the difference between what the Lord is doing and what the Lord wants and what I'm doing and what I want? Well, there's a couple of verses on this. Mark chapter 10 Mark chapter 10, and I'll start in verse 35. There's a section of scripture here. It's about 10 verses I'd like to share with you. Mark 10, 35 through 45, the Bible says, And James and John the sons of Zebedee came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. That's a bold question to ask Jesus Christ. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. <laughs> what a request. What a re- hey, can we be uh, on your right and left hand in heaven? That's what they're asking him. Verse 38, And Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. (laughs) No kidding. He says, can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He's talking about his coming death, burial, and resurrection. And they said unto him, we can. And Jesus said unto them, (laughs) ye shall indeed drink of this cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give. But it shall be given to them from whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. So the other ten disciples heard the request that James and John had. Can we sit on your right hand and on your left? Jesus said, that's not mine to give. And the other disciples heard it, and they got kind of jealous. Verse 42, but Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you, but whatsoever will be great among you shall be your minister. In other words, whoever is the leader will serve you. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servants of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for sin. So what's the difference? How do you understand the difference between what you want and what the Lord wants for you to have? And when the Lord starts walking you through things in life that are not pleasant, they're difficult, how do you switch your focus from the things that you think you're worth to appreciating the things god tells you he wants you to do because it's worth his name not yours well here's the difference here's the here's the key to understanding the separation between those two things you ready folks it's not about you this life is not about you being a christian is not about you being served it's about you being a servant This life is about the life of Jesus Christ. And and Jesus Christ himself said, the greatest among you shall be the servants of the others. What's being a Christian all about? Serving others. Putting others first. Making your life a life of service and work and sacrifice. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that made it willing that that made it available for you to sacrifice your life for others your your desires your wants your agendas your your directions folks it's not about you being a christian has never and will never be about you your life it's about the life of jesus christ and jesus christ gave his life for you and so what do you think he's going to ask you to do for others he's going to ask you to give your life Maybe not your physical life, but he's going to ask you to give away your desires. Give away your opinion of worth. Folks, other people are worth it. Other people are worth it. That's what being a Christian is all about. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, twenty through twenty-eight. The Bible says here, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit on, uh, sit the one on the right hand and the other on the left in the kingdom. So mama's trying to ask the same question. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup? And it goes on. They said, We are able. It's the same story. It plays out the same way. At times, even with the best of intentions, there is just no way for us to understand the requirements and methods of God. Thus, the quote-unquote rhetorical question, at times, is the way God uses to put us in our place. He and his ways are not for us to understand as much as they are for us to accept as is. Folks, the God of heaven doesn't describe himself for us to understand him as much as he declares himself for us to accept him. The final verse I want to show you on this is John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and I'll read 10 through 11. The Bible says here, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. (laughs) The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath the cup which my father hath given me, Shall I not drink it? That's kind of the final rhetorical question, if you will. He says, what are you doing? In other words, this is when Jesus Christ was arrested out of the Garden of Gethsemane, outside the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas, Judas, excuse me, goes and gets the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they come and they ask, are you him? He says, I'm him. They all fall down, they get up. He says it again. They come and they arrest him, and Peter whips out a sword and cuts off a guy's ear. Now, I want you to understand... I think it would be wise for us to understand, to to acknowledge that Peter probably wasn't going for the guy's ear. I'm guessing that he went for the guy's head. The guy ducked. He took off his ear. Jesus bends down, grabs the ear, puts it back on the guy's head, which, by the way, if I'm that guy, it would have gave me a little bit of pause uh, concerning the fact that I was just arresting somebody who supernaturally put my ear back on my head. But that's exactly what happened, and then he asked this question of Peter. He says to Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? In other words, he says this may not be something that you want and Per the prayer that Jesus Christ offers to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, we know it's not even something that Jesus Christ wants, this cup, this responsibility of bearing sin for the weight of the world. But what does that matter? Is he not going to do it? He asked Peter, you think I'm going to not do the will of God? It's a rhetorical question meant to correct Peter. What is the life of Jesus Christ about? obeying the word of God and what is the ministry of being an apostle all about obeying the word of God what is being a Christian all about same thing it's always been about obeying the word of God you say well I don't agree with it what does that matter folks what does that matter God asks questions that show you your inadequacy compared to him, not because he's trying to hurt you or embarrass you or confuse you, but because he's trying to articulate to you that even if he answered your questions, you wouldn't have the capacity to understand the answers. So what's the point? The point is our job, our privilege, our duty is to trust the Lord and obey him. Trust the Lord to obey him. And when the Lord asks you rhetorical questions, they're not meant to give you pause so that you can go argue with him. They're meant to correct you. That's what rhetorical questions are. They're corrective by nature. So what can God do? Well, the Bible says he can do just about anything he wants. Not just about He can do it. The only thing the Bible makes it clear that God can't do is have anything to do with sin, which is why he gave you Jesus Christ, so that he could love you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and have a relationship with you established by Jesus Christ. He can do it all. He brings princes to nothing, the Bible says. He makes judgments of the world vanity perception over the breadth of the earth, all of the things that we found from Isaiah chapter 40 and Job chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41, all the rhetorical questions that he asked Isaiah, all the rhetorical questions that he asked Job, and all the rhetorical questions that he's asking you. Why is he asking you those questions? Because he loves you. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. It requires faith and trust from our part to him. It doesn't require him to explain himself to us. Folks, I love you. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much for listening to the On Being Christian podcast, a ministry of Wasatch Front Baptist Church. I look forward to being able to spend some time with you next time. We've got some things coming up here that are going to be a little bit busy. We've got college class starting here very soon. We've got... Um, different things going on with the Sunday school. There's some different ministries that are taking place outside of the church, just things that we are getting involved in concerning the community. So we thank the Lord for all of those opportunities. If you'd like to get a hold of me, it's wasatchfrontbaptistchurch.com. That's W-A-S-A-T-C-H frontbaptistchurch.com, or you can call me directly on the office line, which is also available at that website. You can listen to this podcast, directly off of that website or pull it off of Spotify, Google, Apple Play, whatever your choice is. That's up to you. Thanks again so much. I'm going to pray and I'll be done. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us in such a way that it makes it safe for us to trust you with everything we are. And obviously, Father, because of everything we're not. Thank you for loving us. Teach us how to love you. Teach us how to walk worthy of the title Christian. We leave these things in your hands, the only hands that matter, Father. We ask that you'd bless us. Bring us back when, uh, when we can be together again and, and, and share some, some thoughts from the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, love you. I'll talk to you next time. God bless.